Well, good morning again. Our ushers are coming to take the offering. If you've got a Bible, you can turn with me to 2 Samuel. We are going to be continuing our study of the life of David, looking at 2 Samuel chapter 9, the story of David and Mephibosheth. Uh, and I'll just point out too, which is probably readily obvious with the set behind me, but we have our kids for him musical tonight. And uh, Noel, remind me, 6.30 or 6? 6? 6.30. See, you all knew better than I did. So 6.30, love for you to join us. Our kids do just a great job of, of presenting the gospel to us through song and music and dance. And it's, it's, a, it's a blast. It's a lot of fun. So, well, I uh, had a chance this week to catch a few minutes of the movie Finding Dory. And I've seen it before. How many of you have seen Finding Dory? I mean, if you want to get your heart ripped out, just throw a Disney flick in, right? Or a Pixar. I don't remember which one. I think Disney owns Pixar now or something. So anyway, I mean, do you guys remember at the beginning, if you've seen it, forgive me if it's spoiler, okay, if you haven't seen it, but it's been years, so that's on you, not on me at this point. At the beginning, you've got little baby Dory, which makes it that much more gut-wrenching and she can't remember anything. You know, mom and dad are trying to train her to remember and they're setting out seashells so she can find her way back home. And at the end of the movie, by the way, there's that precious scene where they've stayed where they are and just put seashells as far as they could reach in every direction to try and lead Dory home. There's a great metaphor in that, by the way. But Dory, at the beginning, was so gut-wrenching is, you know, they're afraid of the undertow. I don't know why they put their home near the undertow. That seemed like a bad idea. But Dory can't remember anything, and mom is crying, and Dory brings her a gift, a seashell to help her remember, and then she sees something, and she goes out, and the undertow takes her, and then she's lost, and these other fish are trying to help her find her home, but she can't remember where she's from. And it's just, it's just heartbreaking when you watch it. I mean, it's, it's heartbreaking, and it's sad, and it's, it, there's, just a, there's kind of a devastation that comes with it. It makes me want to turn the movie off, because I'm like, I can't handle this anymore, even though I know there's probably going to be a good end. Like, this is just too much for me, right? And, and then I had daughters, and I was like, it's really too much for me now, right? And here's the thing. It, I was thinking about it as I was watching a few minutes of it this week, and I was, reminded, I was wondering how many of us in our relationship with Christ are like Dory. One of the saddest things that happens in a life of a believer is when they can't remember some pretty key things, that there are some things that God has invited us to remember, and we're gonna see it in today's text, but I would compel you or urge you to remember, if you're a follower of Jesus, that there are a couple things that are probably paramount above all other things to remember, and, and when we don't remember, that it's heartbreaking and sad and dangerous, honestly, too. Like, for Dory, it was dangerous that she couldn't remember. And for us as believers, it's dangerous if we're Dory-like Christians who cannot remember, one, that we are loved by God that we are loved by God. Like Romans 5, 5 says that hope, the hope we have in, in Christ, doesn't put us to shame. Why does it not put us to shame? Because the Holy Spirit has poured the love of God into our hearts. That's what it says. We are, that, in other words, what Paul's saying, you're a loved people with a spirit that has put that love in you and is constantly putting it in you to remind you that this is who you are. So like seniors, as you graduate and go off or stay near, whatever you do in this next season of life, you're gonna to need to remember that you are loved by God. And there are gonna be moments where I'm guessing we could testify, those of us who have lived a few more years, it's hard to believe that, yes? It's easy to forget that we're loved by God. And when we forget that we're loved by God, we make really bad decisions. 
the worst place to make any kind of decision from is a place of not believing you're loved by God. Because that leads to so many different decisions that leave scars and wounds that hurt us. But the second thing that I would say as a follower of Jesus that you are to remember is that you are to be a person marked by love. Not just knowing that you are loved, but that you are to be a person whose whole life bears the mark of being a loving person, that you are to love God first and most. You remember Jesus in Matthew 22 when he was asked, what's the greatest commandment? Do you remember what he responded if you've read this before? Love God. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength. Love him. Love him more than you love anything else. That's the first kind of love that is supposed to mark us. Remember the words of Jesus to the church in Ephesus at the end of the Bible in the book of Revelation when his indictment of the church is they've done much and they are filled with wisdom and there's a lot of good, but what does he say to them? You've lost your first love. You have lost your first love and that is a serious indictment. You have ceased to love me first and most. Christians are to be people who don't just know that they are loved, but who also are marked by love for God. And then Jesus said in Matthew chapter 22, and the second is like, they didn't even ask him to give the second commandment, by the way. They said, which is the greatest commandment? And Jesus told them, made no bones about it, love God, all your heart, mind, soul, strength. But then he went on to say, and the second greatest is is like that one. And you didn't ask me for a moment, give it to you, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself, right? And who's our neighbor? Jesus told us a story about that in the Good Samaritan. You guys remember this story? And the point of the Good Samaritan is really simple. It's everyone is your neighbor. That's the point. Who's my neighbor? Everybody. Doesn't matter where they're from, what they're like, what they think, what they believe. They're all your neighbor. And Jesus said the greatest commandment, love God, all your heart, mind, soul, strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. It's really sad and really dangerous when God's people forget that we are to be people marked by love. When we become a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal, as 1 Corinthians 13 says. When we forget that we are to be marked by a deep and abiding knowledge that we are loved. And then marked by our ability then from that love to love others. So we're going to look at that today. We're going to see what it looks like to both understand that we are loved by God and what it looks like to express that love. Remember, as we've been walking through the life of David, we've been taking these snapshot moments that the scriptures record about his life that seem to have been very pivotal in shaping who he was as the king that God chose, as the king that had God's favor upon him, the one God loved and delighted in, a king after God's own heart, we're told in the scriptures. And so we've seen different moments in David's life, some good and some not so good, right? Uh, But today we're going to see David express what God's love is like as he engages with a young man named Mephibosheth. I won't make you say it five times fast, all right? But look with me at 2 Samuel chapter 9, and let's read the the whole chapter. It's 13 verses. Let's read it together. So it says this, and David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. 
The king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. The king David, then king David, sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the, uh, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of, your, of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. So I'll point out a couple of things to you from what we just read there. When the Bible repeats itself, it's wanting to draw your attention to what it's repeating. So there were a couple of things. You notice Mephibosheth's name got used a lot. That was hard to read. The second thing you notice is that they made a point to say numerous times that Mephibosheth was what? He was lame in both his feet. They want to make a point about that, and I'll bring that up in just a few moments. They also repeated the idea that Mephibosheth was going to eat where? At David's table again and again. Those are the key repeated ideas in this text. So just kind of to follow the story, I want you to, to make sure you have that. So let's ask this question, or let's understand this sort of proposition. It's this. The king that God chooses, which is kind of what we've been examining, has a heart full of love. That's what we see. The king that God chooses, the person who God delights to have his authority rest upon, is someone who is marked by a heart full of love. And we see that here in David. So let's ask the question, how does a king express his love? How does a king show his love? How does someone whom God has said, I put my authority upon you, now go in my name and use that authority. How does that person love? What does it look like? We see a couple of things here in this passage that I think are really instructive to us. And the first is this. We see it in the very first verse. The, the king that is marked by a heart of love keeps his promises keeps his promises. Now at the very beginning, we read something. You need a little context in order to understand. In verse one, David asks, is there anyone left from the house of Saul, from the line of Jonathan, to whom I may show kindness, to whom I may show favor? And that goes back to the previous book of the Bible, 1 Samuel, where David is great friends with Saul's son, Jonathan. And Jonathan has died in battle. Uh, in fact, Mephibosheth, right when Saul died in battle, became crippled because his nursemaid picked him up and ran with him, wanting to help him escape whatever disaster might come now that Saul and Jonathan, his father and grandfather, had died. Wanting to help him escape that, she either trips and falls or something happens where Mephibosheth falls and he becomes crippled as a result. So that's actually the moment that it's recorded in 1 Samuel chapter 4. But 
what we saw is that before Jonathan had died, David and Jonathan made a covenant with one another. They had been best of friends, and their souls, the scripture text, they were knit together. Their friendship was so close and so rich. And Jonathan, recognizing that David was going to be the next king on the throne rather than he, rather than Jonathan, he made a, essentially a, a deal, a covenant with David, saying, I recognize you're going to be the next king, but promise me that you will show kindness to my children and my children's children, that you'll look after them, essentially. So David had promised to do that. And now that David is settled in his kingdom, the chapter right before this, David is winning numerous battles in chapter 8. He's come to the throne in chapter 6 and chapter 7. He's established his kingdom, and he's made a covenant with God. And now in chapter 8, he's won many battles, and he has some rest now. And so when he has a moment, the first thing on his mind in verse 1 is, who still lives that is a descendant of Jonathan that I can keep my promise to Jonathan by showing them favor? Do you, you follow that? He's looking for an opportunity to keep the promise that he had made. And so the first thing that we see about how someone with authority shows their love is they keep their promises. They keep their promises. And I, I would even say it this way. I would say that the value of our love, the value of our love is defined by our ability to keep promises. In other words, your love is worth exactly the amount of your ability to keep your promises. No one is interested in you being emotionally moved by them if you never keep your word to them. Your love that you give to someone else is worth the exact amount of your ability to keep your promises. It's so imperative and so important, right? This is why we make vows with one another. This is why we make promises to one another. It's an expression of love when you make a promise. Did you know that? That when you make a promise to someone, you are giving an expression of care and love to them. And your keeping of that promise determines how valuable your love is to them. Deeply important to understand that. So let me say then a couple things. We're going to try and apply this in numerous situations because we're going to see all these different things. And you all have various life circumstances and situations. So let's see if we can't see how God's word and these ideas apply in different situations. So the first question that we have to ask is, do I keep promises over those whom I have authority? Right? If, if I have authority, do I keep my promises to them? You can think about that with your kids. You can think about that in the workplace if you're a boss. But I'll say this. If you are a friend, do you know that being a friend to someone comes with a certain amount of authority? That being a friend was, in fact, you're not a friend to someone if they don't have authority in your life and you don't have authority in theirs. Now, to varying degrees, we have friends that are further from us and we have friends that are closer to us, but friendship always involves giving a true friend authority in our lives to speak to us, to challenge us, to encourage us. There's an authority that we grant to one another in friendship. Would you agree with that? True friendship grants authority to the one that we are in that relationship with. And that being the case, here becomes the question. Do I keep my promises to my friends? Do I keep my promises to my friends? Because if I don't, then I'm abusing the authority that I have in their life as their friend. That's an important thing to remember. And, and I'll say this to perhaps a younger generation. Here's something I've noted. I'm not, a, I'm not picking here. I'm not a fan of picking on the younger generation. Uh, but I'll say this. I've noticed that in our younger days, it is, I don't know if it's fear of missing out or if it's just a, a lack of desire to make a commitment. One of the things I find is that 
sometimes you don't want to commit to do something. So you hold out until the very last minute to see if you actually want to do it because something better might come up. Does that resonate a little bit? You're looking at me like, no, it doesn't resonate at all. If it does, here's what I'll say about that. Make commitments and keep them. To your friends, don't wait to see if something better comes up. When you're invited to something, when you're invited into a space or into a social gathering or into an opportunity to serve, when you're invited into that, determine to say yes or no in that moment. Don't Don't hold it at length until you figure out if something better might come along. Prayerfully decide and say yes or say no. And then, my friends, keep your promise. Keep your promise. If something better comes up, keep your promise. Deeply important. Those whom God delights, here's what that will do. That will shape your heart into the heart of a king. When you keep your promise, it will shape your heart into the heart of a king. And your heart cannot be shaped into the heart of one who wields authority well if you won't keep your promises. The second thing we see in this text is that David doesn't just keep his promises. He looks for opportunities to bless. In other words, he's, he's not just, I don't know if you notice, he asks the question, is there anyone to whom I can show favor? In other words, what David is doing, he's not waiting and being reactive where he goes, well, if I encounter a son of Jonathan, then I will show favor to him. I'll bless him. I'll look for a way to, to be kind to him. He doesn't do that. He is proactive in trying to figure out if there's anyone to whom he can show kindness, anyone whom he can bless. And I love that about this text because it could have been that Mephibosheth calls upon David, right? And says, hey, I'm Jonathan's son and I know that you promised my father and I need you to keep that promise to me. And that would have been appropriate. But that's not what happens. It's David who is initiating It's David who is pursuing. It's David who's looking to bless, not reacting. Love is eager to bless people so that the heart that's full of love is on a constant search for opportunities to do so. The heart that's full of love is always looking for opportunities to bless. And I will say this, the heart that's looking is the heart that finds. When you look for opportunities to bless, it's kind of like sharing our faith this is one of those things that I, when I talk with you guys sometimes, I get this sense that they're like, well, I just, I'm not sure. I don't feel equipped to share my faith. And sometimes I want to say, well, you just have to start doing it. Like, and well, with who? Like, I don't have a lot of non-Christian friends. If you're looking, you will find it. If you're looking, you will find it. And the same thing is true here, right? If you're looking for opportunities to bless other people, you will find them. There will be no shortage. I promise you, you, if you start getting your radar up and saying, I'm, I'm going to look to be proactive and looking for opportunities to show love, right? Now, think about this. Like, if you're an employer with your employees, right? What, if you're a boss, like, what does it look like for you? How often are you speaking words of affirmation to bless and affirm? And how often are you critiquing and criticizing? I mean, it seems to me, I'm going to give you a totally made up statistic, okay? This is not, this is just, you know, me. It feels like it should be a 10 to 1 ratio, doesn't it? It feels like it should be a 10 to 1 ratio of of words of affirmation to words of critique or criticism. And if that's not what's in my heart is a desire to bless and, and to affirm, if that's not what's in my heart, something's wrong with my heart. Something's off base, Right? We can even see that Romans tells us uh, that God, it's his kindness that leads us to repentance, not his shaming 
or his discipline. It's his kindness that leads us to repentance. And if kindness leads us to see sin and then respond in repentance and say, God, I need you, then to enter in a relationship with him, how much more should we be filled with kindness and love towards people in both words of affirmation and acts of care and service, looking for opportunities to bless Looking for opportunities to bless. I was thinking about, when I was thinking about this point this week, I was thinking about my mother-in-law. She is a professional affirmer. I mean, they, she, if she got paid by affirmation, by statements of affirmation, she would make $10 million a year. It, it's ridiculous. You cannot walk out of this woman's presence. She's gonna listen to this later and be embarrassed that I'm talking about her. You cannot walk out of this woman's presence without feeling like you may be the best person in the world. Right? It's, it's, it's unreal. Every time you turn around, it's affirmation. It's, it's just, and it's not insincere. That's the thing. It's not insincere. It's the most sincere. It's just like her heart sees constantly the thing she could say at that moment that would be the most affirming thing, and she says it. It's, it's just a remarkable trait I learn from her every time I'm around her. I want to be like her. I'm going to say this, husbands and wives. Amanda and I have a deal, and I want you should make the same deal, Okay? Here's the deal. We've recognized we need words of affirmation in our marriage. Like, I need to tell her that I love her and, and affirming things about her. And I need her to tell me affirming things about me. Would you say yes to that? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So if you need the same thing, here's what I've found. Um, it's always better if we're being proactive and if I sort of recognize, oh, I need to give a word of affirmation without being told, without being asked. That's better. So I need to be on the lookout. But sometimes I'm not that quick on the draw, Okay. And because I'm not, sometimes what's really helpful is if she tells me what affirmation she needs. And when she tells me, then I will give it to her. Right? Now, that may seem really complex, right? It's rocket science. But here's the deal. you got to make this promise. If she tells me what affirmation she needs, and then I give that affirmation, I still get credit. That's important because I'm being dead serious here, okay? And, and vice versa too. If I say, honey, I need this. I need you to affirm this. And then she does it. Because we love each other, we choose to treat that affirmation not as forced, but as requested and then given. And what do we do for people we love when they, when they have a request? We give that request. Our heavenly father knows how to give good gifts and when we ask him for bread, does not give us a stone, right? When we what? When we ask him. He knows how to give what we have asked for. Let's just model that. So let me just say right now, husbands, you should be giving me like a thank you for this because when your wife says, I, wives, don't just sit back and say, you're gonna have to guess. Tell him what you need. And then when he does it, he gets credit. And same way the other way around. I promise you that's a gateway to a really good situation, okay? All right, let's look at the next one. The next thing I love, we pointed this out. The next thing that someone who's marked by God's authority does is he makes a place at the table for those who he loves. He makes a place at the table. We saw this in verse 7, verse 10, verse 11. What did it keep repeating to us? Mephibosheth was going to eat at the king's table 
He was going to eat at the king's table. In other words, in that day and age, what that means is he's going to have a place of authority in the kingdom. He's actually going to sit around with heads of state. He's going to sit at the king's table and not just eat good food. He's going to be able to participate in a conversation. Now, this is a person who's marked by disability is what they're trying to show us, right? This is a person who not everybody's looking at going, that guy's a power broker, That person has a lot to offer. Mephibosheth is living east of the Jordan River, tucked away in the middle of nowhere. Nobody's looking at him going, that's a guy on the rise. Nobody's doing that. And David brings him in and he sits him at his table and he says, I will provide for you and you will be a part of my inner circle. You're gonna be seated at the table. Now, friends, here's what I would say. People whose hearts are marked by love are looking for those who don't have a voice and looking to give them a voice. They're looking for those who don't have a voice and looking for how to give them a voice. This is a really important gospel truth in the area of racial reconciliation. This is one of those incredibly important realities when we think about the division around race in our country and how we go about, if you, if you sit in a cultural seat of power, how do you make a place at the table for someone who perhaps does not have that place? Not because they've earned it, but because it's God's desire to give them that place. It's, it's such an expression of the gospel for those who are not in a position of having a place to, to be brought to the table. And I'll show you how in just a moment as we look at Revelation. But the other thing I'll say too is aside from that, I want to point to the reality of neighboring well. Uh, whether you're single or married, whatever stage of life you're in, neighboring well means inviting your neighbors to a place at the table. And you know, if you don't feel like, if you're like, I live in an apartment, I don't feel like I can host, it, it might just be inviting a coworker out for a beer after work. That invitational nature where you said, hey, I'm, I am, I'm inviting you to come and be with me. If you have a home where you can host people, that looks like saying, you have a place at our table. Church family, I wanna say to you, it's really important. It's real. I mean, so we just talked about affirmation, and I would say no one should ever walk out of this church no one should ever walk out of the church without having been affirmed in some way by having been here. Could you imagine what it would be like if every person who walked through the doors of here on a Sunday morning got affirmed somehow? Just in some way, shape, or form, no one ever walked out these doors without having a word of affirmation. In the same way, no one should ever walk out the doors of this church without having received some invitation to draw closer. Some invitation into friendship. Some invitation into relationship. That should never occur. There should always be an invitation into more, into, into you belong here. You're invited here, right? And, and if you're f- first time with us today, you can tell us how we're doing at that. We got, we've got growing to do there, I think. So here's my challenge to you. This summer, try this in your neighborhood, okay, if, you, if this works for you. Try this in your neighborhood. This summer, my challenge to you is to have at least one neighbor or set of neighbors over to your house for dinner at some point this summer. At some point this summer, invite someone into your home, make a meal, and sit with them and enjoy their company. No agenda other than to show the love of someone who knows they're loved by God, and someone who knows they're loved by God does what? Invites people to their table. Says, you're welcome, you're welcome at our table. Next thing we see, last one here in this text. In addition to having a place at the table, looking for opportunities to bless and affirm and keeping our promises, the last one we see is that he treats servants like sons. 
The king who has a heart like God's heart, filled with love, treats servants like sons. Now, I don't know if you noticed in verse, I think it was verse 11. Yeah, verse 11. When David invites Mephibosheth to the table and there's all that discussion of how he's gonna be provided for and he's gonna tell Ziba and his servants, you're gonna take care of the land, which is interesting, right? Because he's essentially saying, you're gonna produce a crop and a harvest for him and he's giving back all of Saul's land. Saul is his grandfather. Saul was a king. Do you think he had a lot of land? Yes. And this, is, this could be dangerous to David's throne, right? He's inviting this heir of Saul to his table, to his inner circle, and then he's reestablishing him in authority by giving him land in an agrarian society. That, David is one of the marks of David's life that is one of the things that makes him so remarkable is he always seems more concerned with God's glory and with loving people than he does with his position of power. He just doesn't seem all that concerned with continuing to be king or becoming king. It's a really remarkable thing about David. And he just thinks about keeping his promises and showing love. He doesn't think, like, is this strategically smart of me to do in this moment? He just does it because it's right. I love that. But if you notice in verse 11, what it said was, he will be like one of my what? Sons. He ate at at David's table like one of David's, and he was treated like one of David's sons. And I love that because here's what love does it treats people better than they deserve to be treated. Mephibosheth is a servant and he knows it. What did he say when he bows down in homage and he says, I am your servant. That's what Ziba has said before him. It's what Mephibosheth then says. And and Mephibosheth maybe even goes a little overboard when he's like, who am I? I'm a dead dog. Why would you treat me with kindness, right? Which may be a bit much, I don't know. But David's response is to take Mephibosheth, who at least feels like a dead dog in the presence of David, and says, I'm going to treat you not even like a servant. I'm going to treat you like a son. I'm going to love you and care for you and provide for you and protect you. I'm going to extravagantly love you, so much so that you won't feel like a servant. You'll feel like a son. When Christians' hearts are filled with love as they should be, we treat people better than they deserve. We treat people better than they deserve. The question is never, how much love are they, wor- are they worthy of? The question is, God, how do you see them? And can I show them your love? Not my love, my love is limited, it's often conditional. I mean, my love is not, val- not that valuable. But God's love poured through his people is incredibly valuable because it pursues and it never stops and it keeps coming and it's lavish in the way it treats us and it just, it gives us an inheritance and it affirms again and again. I was reading Psalm 40 again this morning and I was just thinking, you get to the end of this psalm and at the end of Psalm 40 in verse 17, David is writing and he says, the Lord, the Lord has thoughtfulness towards me. I just love that. The Lord has given thought to me. In other words, what David is saying, like he's very intentional about how he thinks about orchestrating my life. I just sat there this morning as I was praying and I just thought, kind of like Mephibosheth, who am I? Who am I that you would give thought to my life and care and intention? And he does. It's really remarkable. It's really remarkable. So he treats servants like sons. And I'll encourage you, I'll encourage you, um, don't wait till others treat you well to treat them well. 
Don't wait until others treat you well to treat them well. In fact, Jesus had something to say about that. Everybody can do that. Everybody can do that. Anyone can love someone that loves them. Who's it really hard to love? The person who doesn't love you back or love you first or show any indication that they even like you. That's the person who when our hearts are filled with love, we should be able to love. Now, let me just show you. Because David gives us a great example. But who is he pointing us to? He's pointing us to our true king. And just listen, because Jesus can do what David could never do. Because David does some good stuff, but Jesus does even more. So let's just, let's just think about these scriptures here for a minute in the few minutes we've got left. Jesus, who's God's true and better king, has done more than David could ever, do, could ever do. In his love, in Jesus' love, he has granted us all of God's promises. David keeps his promises. Jesus becomes access for us to all of God's promises. So we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. All the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Do you understand what, what Paul's just said there? He said that Jesus doesn't just keep his promises. He gives us access to all of God's promises. And if we're in him, anything God has promised, is it ever no? It's not. It's always yes. Think about what that means when you call upon God in prayer. If he's made a promise to you and you are in Christ Jesus, that promise is yes to you. And listen to how that comes out in 2 Peter. In 2 Peter verse 1, chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, it says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. That's a pretty broad promise, right? Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us. So in other words, through his glory and excellence, he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. And then what do those promises do? So that through them, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. If you wanna know how to overcome sinful desire, how to overcome those patterns of sin that you keep falling into again and again, do you see what Peter has just told us? He said, you have been granted the precious and very great promises of God, and you've been granted those because God is so awesome, is essentially what he said. God is so awesome that you have been granted promises, and you've been granted them through Christ, through his excellency, and by knowing those promises, having been granted those promises, you become partakers of the what? Divine nature. In other words, you become like God when you understand the promises he has made to you and you overcome sinful corruption and deceit. That there's a pathway there. Just mark it down. Go back to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, again and again and again, because he's saying when you know the promises of God that he's made for you and that they are yes in Christ Jesus for you, you will overcome sin. You will fight sin and you will win when you understand. In his love, Jesus has not just made us, given us access to the promise of God, he has sought us out. He has sought, David sought for opportunities to keep his promises. Jesus hasn't just sought for opportunities to keep his promises. He has sought us out to give us his promises. See, Jesus didn't say, well, I promise, therefore I better go find them and, and so I can keep my promises to them. He found us to make promises to us so that we could be his forever. How amazing is that? He sought us out just to make those promises. Ephesians chapter 2 Verse four and five. 
But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. In other words, we were dead. He sought us out, and he made us precious and very great promises. How about this? Not just he sought us out. In his love, he has made a place for us at God's table. David made a place from Mephibosheth. God has made you a better place at a better table. Do you know this? Jesus has given you a better place at a better table than Mephibosheth ever had at David's table. And I'm telling you, that's a pretty good table. But the table that you and I are invited to is found in Revelation 19, and it's a marriage, wedding, supper, party table. And we are invited there because we are the bride. I know, dudes, that's weird, but just get used to it, okay? We are going to be married to the king of kings. And we have been invited to the greatest feast and the greatest party and the greatest supper that will ever happen. Listen to how it's described in Revelation 19. I read this at every wedding that I do. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Alleluia, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. Why? Why do we give him the glory in this text? For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. Do you see the picture? He's saying, come to the banquet, come to the table, a place has been prepared for you, and you're not gonna come there and sit in dirty, filthy rags. You're gonna be clothed in fine linen, bright and pure. You're gonna be cloaked in righteousness at my table, and you're gonna be mine forever. And you're gonna feast here with me. Now, David had a pretty good table, but it doesn't compare to that. And that's the table that you and I belong to. That's our table. That's the food we're gonna partake of for all eternity. The last thing we see is that in his love, he has turned servants into sons and daughters. David treated Mephibosheth like a son, but Jesus has not just treated us as sons and daughters, he has turned us into sons and daughters. Now only Jesus can do that. Only Jesus can do that. Only he can come and say, I'm not just gonna treat you like a son. I'm going to make you a son. I'm going to make you a daughter. And that's the good news that we have. It's what 1 John chapter 3, verse one says. And it's, Behold, what kind of love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. I love the and so we are at the end of that, by the way. It's almost like, it's almost the statement of disbelief you know, but affirmation at the same time. What kind of love has he lavished us that we should be called children of God? And so we are. And so it's, it's just, this is true. And so we are. Now here's what I recognize. We're, what I want you to see today is that work that Jesus has done in the same way that you are called to live like David, in your heart of love towards others, you also are very much Mephibosheth, and so am I. And we have been carried to the table. We couldn't walk to the table, but we have been carried there. You and I had no hope of getting to this table. 
and he carried us there. He came and found us, and he picked us up, and he brought us, and he set us down. He said, you may have been crippled before, but I've made you whole, and you're at my table now. All is right. You may be in the position of never having come to that table, and today you need to respond to that. But church family, I also recognize that you may be in that position of you know you have a place at the table, but you see your crippledness more than you actually see that you're at the table. More than you actually see that God has made you. And, and as a result, you're living steeped in fear or you're living overcome by sin because you, you don't understand the inheritance you have that allows you to overcome sin. You might be steeped in anxiety. You might feel constantly alone. All these things are possible Part of the reason is you're not seeing that he has picked you up and carried you to the table. You might be kind of like Dory and forgetting how great his love is for you. And that is both dangerous and it's heartbreaking. I just want to invite you today. We're, we're, we're wrapping up the sermon here with lots of time left because I want us to have some time to pray and just ask God to pray for us. So I'm gonna ask the team to come on up and they're gonna, they're gonna play a song for us which is called Carry to the Table and it's about Mephibosheth's story. And I just want you to hear it and I want you to engage in prayer during it, okay? I just want you to have some time to pray, seek the Lord and then we'll sing together. But in all this time, our prayer team's gonna be up here and I just wanna invite you to come to the table to come and receive prayer, to come and receive from the Lord. If you recognize that you are seeing your crippledness more than you're seeing God's love for you, overcoming that crippledness, I wanna invite you to come and receive prayer. And, and don't be shy. Don't worry about what anyone else thinks. So let's, let's just meet together in this time. And as we always know, the Holy Spirit meets with us when we pray together for one another. So I just wanna invite this during this first song. I'm gonna pray for us. We're just gonna listen to the song and pray as we do. And you can come during that time. Don't wait, just come during that song. You can come during the second song. We're just gonna have a time of prayer now, seeking the Lord together. So let's pray. So Lord Jesus, we are so glad to see the truth of your word. And we pray now that as we come to a time of just wanting to receive from you directly through prayer and responding to you through worship, we pray that you'd meet us in this place. Holy Spirit, we pray that you'd move us according to our need. We come with expectation now to receive from you. We've received from your word. Now we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would allow us to receive from you as you indwell us. You'd impart to us truth. Give us eyes to see. We pray in the name of Jesus.